Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with my podcast partner, Ben Hardy. So everyone is measuring themselves against something, right? We're all measuring ourselves against something. We're trained by society and often by our parents to measure it against something that doesn't exist, which you would call make-believe. How do you get someone to know if they're in the gap or in the game? Since we're aiming at high performers, that's been my community now for close to 50 years as high performers. One is they take no pleasure in their achievements, their progress, and their success. And if you compliment them on it, they blow you off. And the reason is because they're not experiencing any progress whatsoever. They're no closer to who they want to be. As a matter of fact, having achieved something really phenomenal and taking no pleasure actually makes them feel that they're further away where they want to be. It's not that they haven't gained ground. They've actually lost ground. Because if winning the World Series doesn't do it, what is going to do it? If walking on the moon doesn't do it, what is going to do it? If I It winning, just puts you further and further in the hole? Yeah. You feel more alone. You feel more isolated because you know that people outside of you can't comprehend what you're going through. Because you got every reason in the world to be happy from their perspective, but your own perspective, you have nothing to be happy for. Yeah. So how does, because I love what you've said, you have a vision for the future. You're always creating a vision. I love what you said about you own your vision, you own achievement, but you don't take ownership of how you measure yourself. You defer that to something else. Or just, Will you explain that a little bit more? Like, How is that not taking ownership of how you measure yourself? Well, because you have a belief that your ideal, so your vision is an ideal vision, your vision is not a measurable vision. And as a matter of fact, it's not the kind of thing that can be measured practically. It's a measurement of a certain feeling about yourself that if you do this, you will feel that way about yourself. Okay. One of the things you got to be careful about feelings because Feelings are great motivators, but they're terrible measurements. What I mean by that is that to even establish a goal and launch into commit yourself to a goal requires a very, very powerful vision of what the possible reward is of the achievement. But when you get there, you say, well, I don't feel the way I pictured in my mind when I established the goal. And I said, no, that was simply to get yourself going. You know, it wasn't real, but it was motivating. It was motivating. When you get to the success line, you know, that you said, then the measurement from where you were before you started, that's where the measurement is, because that's actually practically measurable. And this is practically measurable. So you thought, you know, boy, if I win an Academy Award, it's just going to be the best night of my life and everything like that. And I said, no, no. How many people were phoning you with movie scripts before you won the Academy Award? And who wants to talk to you tomorrow now that you've won? That's the measurement. How you feel about it's up to you. That's your choice. It isn't going to make you feel anyway. You're the only person who can make you feel some way. So it's a misinterpretation that outside external things control your feelings. You know, like they don't. You control your feelings. 
nobody else has your feelings, so they must be your feelings. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been looking around for, you know, who owns my feelings and nobody's taking ownership. You know, it must be my feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's a thing, you know, and it's a mental construct. And I use the horizon line as mm -hmm. an analogous. And I said, why do we need the horizon line? I said, because we have to come to grips with space. It's an interesting thing that children who are born blind or they lose their sight early and then they regain their sight. It takes them about a year to get used to three-dimensionality if they haven't grown up with three-dimensionality. So babies don't see things three-dimensionality. They just see flat spaces and mom's, you know, she's a shape and other people a shape. And then gradually their eyes, the eye is born with a capacity for three-dimensionality, but actually the three-dimensionality is not in the eye. The three-dimensionality is in the brain. Gradually, the power of the eye, the brain starts taking advantage of the eye and it starts seeing three-dimensionality because it's structured to pass on that information. Actually, the brain only picks up 10%, or what I would say is we create complete pictures with only 10% of the information. So the eyes can only do sort of things, but the brain, through experience, says, hey the, out. hey, the last time I did this, this is about six inches deep. <laughs> and your brain says, okay, it's six inches, because your brain had to figure out that you know, these things are round, they're square, and everything. So the big thing is that this is a mental construct, and it's the way the brain comes to grips with space, especially when you're living on a round planet, you know, a, a spherical planet, you have to do that. An ideal is the same as the horizon line, but it's the way we come to grips with time, okay? So one of them is how we come to grips with space, the other one's how we come to grips with they serve exactly the same purpose so we can orient ourselves in time. But in space, you can get to a line, but it's not the horizon. In other words, you know, I'm going to get to the five mile line. Well, you can get to the five mile line, but when you're on the five mile line, the horizon isn't any closer. Yeah. When you get to your goal line that you said, when you win the Academy Award, that's measurable. You just won the Academy Award. There were witnesses. Somebody got it. Only one person gets it, and you're the one who got it. That's a measurable event. But in relationship to your ideal of how you would be, you're no closer. Because if you thought the Academy Award was going to make you feel the way you wanted to feel, I remember, uh, what's his name, who played in the King's Speech? Did you ever see the movie, The King's Speech? I don't know if I did. George VI, the Queen's father, stuttered. And uh, he wasn't supposed to be king, so they never solved the problem of their stuttering son, who wasn't supposed to be king, and then he becomes king. And what did we end up with? The stuttering son became the king. And he couldn't give radio addresses. You know, he would just be caught. He couldn't give public speeches, and he had to. It was wartime, and, you know, we need an unstuttering king. <laughs> wartime requires unstuttering kings. Peacetime, you can get away with a stuttering king. Wartime, you can't get away. And so he brought in this speech pathologist from Australia who showed him how to do it, you know, and he started giving radio speeches and everything like that. And the actor who won the award, the actor who won the Academy Award for his performance, 
he accepted it. And it was so great. It was such a great statement. He says, I guess it's all downhill from here. So he can't take that accomplishment and have a better future. He has to take that accomplishment and use it as a gap. Yeah. I haven't seen him in anything since. So, so. this is the Academy Award because I'm, I'm actually trying to think in my mind of what would be a really good opening story. You know, like, and that's exactly what Buzz Aldrin said. It's all downhill from here. Yeah. You know? And since we're talking about high performers, this is really, really important because... I mean, there's so many tragedy stories of people who had success and then went downhill. Yeah, that's so good. I never felt once like you were in the gap with me, even when things were going slow. You were just totally very patient with me. I never felt any form of, I've never felt any form of criticism from you, Dan, but I never felt once in the gap with you, even when the situation I was in the gap with myself so do you feel pretty comfortable saying you're pretty close to being at that in all dimensions of your life at this point? No, but I would say that the type of collaboration that we have would be only possible with someone that I don't feel any necessity to criticize. If I felt I was going to have to do any course correcting or anything, I wouldn't have gone for it. But with both you and Tucker, I said, these guys just know how to operate in a world that I have no knowledge. I said, on what basis could I criticize it? One of the things is, and I've discovered, and this is probably another aspect, because I grant myself the right to be the judge of my own measurements, I find myself not needing to be judgmental of other people. It's almost because I have a confidence in my own judgment about myself. I don't really have to be judging other people. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Goodhart's Law? No, I haven't. All right. So look at this. Goodhart's Law is a statistical concept. What you're saying reminds me of this. Let me see if I can find. That's why I got you on the project. You know where all these laws are. So this is it. Look, Goodhart's Law says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. In other words, if you pick a measure to assess people's performance, then we find a way to game it. I get it because it becomes sort of like a fixation. Well, like as an example, like in IO psychology, which is my PhD, they say like you reward A while trying to get B, you know, so like you're really trying to get someone to do this, but you reward them for this. Like, so for me, my target might be that I want to sell a lot of books or even get a book deal, but then I start succeeding on medium. And then that that's a measure of how well I'm doing, but then that becomes my target where I've now shifted my goal. And now I'm, obsessed with what was the means to the end. And I've now made that my end. And they say, when you do that, you now have the wrong measure. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example of someone I had experience with who was a complete gapper, turns out complete gapper. One of the single most successful clothing stores for affluent men, the upper affluent men's market in the world so I was one of his last personal customers. You know, he had been doing this for 50, and he wasn't taking on new customers. I met him through an intermediary. We are at the table, and he said, yeah, yeah, starting to get close to wrap it up. And I said, so wrapping up stage one, and now you're getting ready for stage two. The other person went to the restroom, and he said, what do you mean by stage two? And I said, well, the stage one, you got all this experience. And stage two now is sharing all this experience with the world. I said, just as a suggestion. So he was about 
78, when this happened. And what I did was I spent lavishly. I paid like $25,000 a year for the right to kind of find out what he really knew. And I interviewed him and we created videos and I created a book. You know, it's really well done. You know, the clients could get it, the clients could buy it, and they loved it. They just loved his wisdom and everything like that. And when the finished copy came back from the printer, I sent it to him and then we had lunch. The only thing he responded to was on page 28, there was a typo. And that made the project worthless because on page 28, there was a typo. Ouch. You just took the wrong road. And that was it. You know, it was like there was a real opportunity. And I ran into him on the street about five years later. And he said, I think about you every day. He said, I think about you every day. He said, I learn more about myself talking to you than anybody else I've ever talked to. I said, yeah, but, you know, you got to word it right. I mean, that story reminds me exactly of the 39A's story, you know. The one oh, yeah. No. I mean, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what it does to your past because it makes your past useless. Yeah. Even your best achievements. Whereas what I love about what you've said, Dan, and there's a concept you will love, it's called identity capital. Identity capital means you own your past. So if I wrote a book, that means I own it. Yeah. That's my capital. My identity capital, meaning I own the idea that Ben Hardy actually did something. And you should own your past and that gives you confidence. Yeah, they call that identity capital in psychology. And I love that what you've said, even with the Buzz Aldrin or the uh, other story we were talking about earlier with this, you know, I'll never top this, the guy. What they don't realize is that even if their achievements don't look externally as big, they're stepping forward from their past, right? They're using it to step forward. They're still advancing and making progress from that achievement. It doesn't have to be measured against, you know. So I love that. There's a great documentary, and I think you could probably just Google the topic and you get a hold of it. And it's interviewing Madison Avenue quality models. And these are people who make a living modeling. And they had them just go through a an interview. There were a number of them. I don't know what the number was. And they were just down to bras and panties. And they asked them to look in the mirror and say what they experienced when they look in the mirror. And all of them said, all I see is fat. Is this a story that you have access to? Like when we were introducing the gap, I had seen this and I just brought it in. But it's the incredibly low self-image that models have because an ounce of fat can cost them a job. Well, they're also just, they're always measuring themselves against something that's impossible to achieve. And so they, as brilliant as they all look to all of us, like you said, the external adulation never registers in their mind. They feel like a loser. Yeah. And uh, the people who run that industry are really mean people too. Jeff Madoff will tell you because he was connected to Victoria's Secret for 25 years. You know, he did all their new season videos for the Victoria's Secret. Kathy Ireland is really a good person to talk to here because she seemed like the most balanced. You know, she was on 13 covers of Sports Illustrated. She runs a $2 billion company called Kathy Ireland Global. I think it's called 
KI Global or something like that. She's got one niche, and it's women from around age 20 to age 75. And everything that women go through over a 55-year period, she's got a product for you. She's got a product or service for you. You know, she's a mother of four. She's probably around 58. She looks really tall until Babs meets her. You know, she's 5'11", Babs is six foot two. It was so funny when we met, you know, we introduced and we talked to each other. And the first thing, thing is that Kathy Ireland, when she met Babs, she looked down at her feet. You know, she came and she gave a talk for two hours at the New School in New York. We were there, we were invited and we met her. She just struck me as incredibly, her head was screwed on the right way. And it was screwed on the right way when she was 17 years old and it screwed on 40 years later. And it'd be interesting because she was in that world. She was famous for 15 years. She quit and she started her business at age 32. Somebody said, well, how do you look at your modeling career? She says, it was a bridge before I went into it. And it was a bridge after I got off of it. She said, I was a kid from a low-income family in Santa Barbara, California. And the only way I was going to go somewhere is if I took advantage of this opportunity. So I took advantage of the opportunity. She said, any of the men who fooled around with me got a bloody nose or a black eye. Mm. So you could tell that she was someone who is in an industry that's just known for the gap. It's a gap but industry. How did you do this? How did you do this? How did you go through this industry? Because she was hired when she was like 17, right off the beach in Santa Barbara. But she had been paper boy of the year for the previous four years. And she was the only girl who was ever a paper boy in Santa Barbara. And Warren Buffett is investing in her company and at their annual meeting every year, both Warren Buffett and what's his partner's name? I forget. Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger. They were both paper boys. So Warren Buffett at the beginning of every meeting, they have a paper toss and all the people who were paper boys. And she said, even Warren doesn't know that it's all in the wrist. It's got to be right there. She says, they open the door and it's right where they want it. She says, all in the wrist. So good. Who Not How is really a new concept. So all the success stories were in the last two years. But the gap in the gain is 25 years old. Yeah, exactly. And so what I'm going to do is we'll put out a note to the, we'll look at people 10, 15 years in the program and say, can you tell us a story about how the gap and gain change things for you personally in business? That's exactly what I would love. Yeah, if we could just get those stories. The coaches may have some great stories. I think the coaches and I think the program advisors. Yeah, uh, the, I think since this is such a deep concept, the more stories that I can get access to, if I could get just 10, 20 great stories, this book is gonna be so gorgeous. 